Well, Todd Wood. At CD Media, we decided never to have paywall on any of our sites. I hate those. But we have to make money, so we do have advertisements. But some people don't like ads. So what can you do? You can sign up for our no ad subscription. It's a few bucks a month. You go to the top of any of our sites and sign up for the subscription. And you get access to all of our websites, all of us from around the world, to include our Eastern European, Israeli, Balkan sites. It includes armedforces.press. It includes all the U.S. papers that we've opened, the Miami Independent, the Connecticut Sentinel, the Georgia Record, the Manhattan.press, and the, those that are yet to come in the pipeline, which will be opening soon. So you get all this access to fantastic news from around the world with no ads, no display ads, no pop-up ads. I think you'll love it. Please check us out. It helps support CD media, independent media, and basically confronting the propaganda that's being put out by the corporate media. Thank you. Now let's get to our guest. Welcome, everybody. Uh, tonight, we're doing a special of our global conversation in plain sight because of unprecedented actions that have been taken uh, in Washington, D.C., with our federal agency overseeing uh, whether or not the COVID shots, I will call them shots, are to be put on the children's schedule in the United States. And joining us tonight is uh, Dr. Merle Nass and David Bell, both of whom have been our guests before, to talk about what really happened in the last 48 hours. Merle has been monitoring the meeting uh, in Washington, D.C., and David's experience on the world stage with all of the WHO and, and the different agencies that, are, that will be affected by this and every country and, and family in the world because of the decision that was made. So Merle, uh, first of all, welcome guys. Glad to have you back. Thank you. And uh, Merle, let's start with you because you you monitored these meetings. Now, this, as we understand it, this was not an unprecedented meeting in the fact that we knew it was going to be held uh, in October. And we knew the question was going to be on the table whether or not these shots were going to be put on the, the uh, children's vaccination schedules. Let's talk about the first day because there was a decision that was made that you've, you've clarified for everybody. What was what happened yesterday? So yes, so the CDC actually in Atlanta had a meeting I'm on sorry, two days Atlanta, with its its single advisory committee, the advisory committee on immunization practices, and um, they discussed quite a number of things. But yesterday they discussed putting the COVID vaccines into a federal benefits program called Vaccines for Children, in which the federal government pays the cost of vaccines for kids on Medicaid or who don't have other insurance. And about half the kids in the country get their vaccines paid for on this program. So COVID vaccines went into it yesterday. It was a little unusual because they aren't licensed. They're under emergency use authorization. That hasn't happened before. 
But we were told yesterday by the head of the CDC's um, Division on Immunization and Respiratory Disease that this was not going to be uh, putting it on the childhood schedule. This was just the Vaccines for Children program. Today, um, the CDC presented to its advisory committee a series of uh, several dozen edits. They called them edits to the childhood, adolescent, and adult vaccine schedule. What does that and mean? What does that mean? What does that terminology mean? That terminology means they were hiding what they were doing as best they could. And so in amongst the edits was the addition of the two mRNA COVID vaccines to the childhood schedule. Now, what that means is some states, multiple states adopt the CDC's childhood schedule as the required vaccines every child must have to go to school. So this means in many states, children will automatically be required to have these vaccines. The other thing it means is that the manufacturer will get another very broad liability coverage. So all vaccines that are on the childhood schedule or that CDC recommends for pregnant women have their liability waived. And instead, if you're injured, you go through something called the National Vaccine Injury Program managed by special masters um, and paid for by a 75 cent excise tax on every dose of vaccine. So what this, right now, the manufacturers of all the COVID vaccines under EUA are also uh, without liability. So if you get injured, you can apply to the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, and you can sit and wait because they haven't compensated a single person for a COVID vaccine injury. They don't acknowledge that they exist. However, and you have a one-year statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. um, so while the EUA vaccine is waived from liability, as soon as it gets licensed, it would have liability. But because now it's been put on the childhood schedule, even before being licensed, the manufacturers will be able to just switch over one from one liability shield to another and never have a period of time where they have any liability for injuries from these vaccines. Let me also point out that this liability shield doesn't just cover the manufacturers. The current liability shield covers everybody in the government who has been involved with planning the vaccine program, covers every building, it covers every, you can't have a slip and fall in a vaccine building and sue for it if you're going there to get vaccinated because the liability protection is so broad. And, so it anyway, also, and it also protects anybody who participated under the Emergency Use Act for the distribution and the administration yes. of the shots. So basically it's, basically, basically it's it's just, it's another layer for no product, for, for product, for no product liability. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So we knew this was a we knew this was a goalpost. We knew that this is what pharma wanted to do. We know that the FDA, CDC, NIH, NIAID are captive agencies for the pharmaceutical industry in the past, but we know it's even more so for the um, under the Emergency Use Act for the COVID shots covering J and J, Moderna, and Pfizer. Does it cover any of the other companies that are thinking of getting into the 
COVID vaccination, mRNA, or Novavax, or any of these? I mean, what, which one does it cover? Yes, it covers Novavax. It covers all four: Novavax, J and J, Moderna, and Pfizer, BioNTech. And but it, what it requires is you have to be issued an emergency use authorization. So this explains why President Biden just recently extended the Emergency Use Act. Yes. And yes. so it's is it January? Is it January or February? Every three months it has been extended since it began in early 2020. Because if it isn't, all these emergency use authorizations disappear. So off the top of my head, I, and I can't remember whether it was two weeks ago or last week or three weeks ago, but uh, Biden, the Biden administration announced that they were extending it, I think, to, to January or February. Is that right? Um, I think they only do it for three months at a time. And I think it was September when okay. it was last extended. So so even though Biden says we're, we don't have an emergency, the pandemic's basically over. Um, yet they still invoke the emergency now because that protects everyone. Let me ask you a question, Merle. If President Biden had not extended that Emergency Use, use Act, could this decision have been made with the, the, the clear indication of no product liability for the pharmaceutical company? So if, if he had not extended it, the the liability protection under the countermeasures injury program would have gone away, but they could still always go to this national vaccine injury program and, and get that. Now, what was interesting to me um, that yesterday and today at the CDC meetings, they have a number of ex officio members who may speak, but don't vote. And there's always a very top person from FDA there. Well, yesterday and today, both days, the FDA person did not show up. All right. So before I go to David, uh, how many people actually voted? It was 15 people? 15. I and they voted unanimously in favor of adding the, the vaccine to the schedule and to every other edit that was made. All right. So 15 to zero was yesterday and today. So it's Correct. on the schedule. They get no liability. How many, who are these people that sit on those schedules? A lot of them um, get paid by CDC for some of the work that they do. Some of them do uh, clinical trials involved with CDC. Um, some of them do vaccine studies for manufacturers. They claim they have no conflicts of interest, but they don't disclose their conflicts. When you, when you look them up, they seem to have conflicts. What um, Politico showed is that a lot of people on these federal advisory committees for FDA and CDC wind up getting lucrative um, contracts after they leave their advisory positions. I noticed that when I dropped in for the, the vote, because you had you, you and I had spoken earlier today, you said it was going to happen about 1.20. I dropped in to see, and, and from the notes that you had, um, because you were monitoring it, you know, they weren't showing the faces, but when they got to the vote, they were showing the faces and they all said, you know, when their name was called out, you know, no conflict. Yes. And I, I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? So they're on the record. They're saying that there's no conflict there. We'll find out. We'll do a deep dive on who these people are now. Um, but David, I want to bring you into the conversation. Um you have worked and, and consulted with some, some of the big international agencies for years. Um, 
what kind of a message this, does this send to everybody out there? And we know that UNICEF uh, made an announcement in their publication in August saying that they were going to move ahead with the uh, inoculation of kids in sub-Saharan Africa because there is less percentage of people that have been vaccinated in sub-Saharan Africa. And, and that is one of the things they want to do. We know from May, right before the WHO General Assembly was announced or started, that the WHO executives came out and said that their goal is to have 100% of healthcare workers worldwide vaccinated uh, with the COVID shots, 100% of everybody who is 60 years of age and older, and everybody who has an underlying condition worldwide, regardless of age. So when this is approved at this level in the United States, what's the impact worldwide, David? Yeah, <clears throat> so... See, I mean, CDC obviously has no jurisdiction outside the US, but they're very influential. So this sends a message that mRNA vaccines are safe and effective for children, um, despite the clear lack of evidence to back that. And I don't think the, CD, the CDC didn't have any strong evidence behind their decisions. So uh, it's, you know, it's extraordinary, both in the US and outside. So we know, and CDC has demonstrated, most children in the US are now have immunity to COVID. They've demonstrated in the past in their own studies that vaccinating on top of post-infection immunity has almost no, makes almost no discernible difference to outcomes from COVID because post-infection immunity is very broad and very long lasting. So, and, you know, in the last week in the Journal of the American Medical Association, there's a study which shows that out of 7,800 US children under five who they looked at who were vaccinated for, with against COVID, there was 10, so one in 780 needed hospital attention as a result of the vaccination. So that's, that's an extraordinary rate of hospitalization for children after vaccination. If this goes to schools as a lot of states, their schools follow the, the schedule, then you would expect in an average US school that a few children each year will go to hospital for this vaccination. Um, and these are children, they'll be children who are already immune from COVID, who intrinsically have very, very low risk. It's, it's not clear whether any ch healthy children in the US have died of COVID. Um, there's a number of children who have died with COVID you have other comorbidities, but healthy children, it's possible. You know, it, it appears that there are none. Um, so you translate this to somewhere like, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, you, you mentioned um, the drive to vaccinate people there. And um, it's actually, they're trying, the WHO would like to get at least 70% of the entire population vaccinated. Uh, it's, it's very similar. A WHO study in the third quarter of um, 2021, so before Omicron went through Africa, showed that the majority of people in Africa were already immune to COVID. 50% um, of the African population is under 20. So they are extremely low risk. There's a very much lower rate of metabolic diseases than here. And 94% of the deaths with COVID in the US are with at least one 
comorbidity, mostly related to obesity, diabetes, etc., which are relatively uncommon in most African countries. So you have a population that is already immune, is at intrinsically very low risk. Mortality has been tiny. If you look at mortality now in Africa, it's almost none from COVID. The, um, you know, there's, um, if you, you, you put on a graph, you compare it with, um, you know, Europe and the US and it, it's flatlining on the bottom. So almost no one out of say South Africa and a few countries on the Mediterranean is dying of COVID. So the, the Tedros, the, the head of the um, WHO, he came back from the World Health Summit in Berlin a few, couple of days ago, announcing that he had another $2.6 billion pledged to vaccinate these people. Yeah, that, that is every year for malaria, we spend the whole world, all countries together, spend about three and a half billion for a disease that's killing half, over half a million children every year. So we're spending similar amounts and they plan to spend far more than that on a disease that's killing almost no one and for which everyone is already immune. It's, you know, it, you could not envisage this sort of thing happening a few years ago. It is so completely ridiculous. It's sort of hard to grasp what is going on. So Merle, let me ask you this. When, when over the course of the last two days, the what was presented to these people that made this green light uh, that's going to have global ramifications and implications? I mean, did they give any substance or was it just palaver? Well, they weren't really told very much. Uh, you know, these people are rubber stampers. They were selected for these committees and the you know FDA vaccine advisory committee also a bunch of people who will basically go along with just about anything. The one time they disagreed, and I think it's the only time in, in my memory, was when the FDA and CDC wanted to add a booster last year. And they had been, these people had been told the vaccines were so wonderful, they didn't need a booster because they were working so well. And so they voted against the booster. And then the head vaccine person at FDA and the head of CDC overruled them so what they vote really doesn't matter. They can be overruled, but they want, you know, each agency wants cover and it needs to have an advisory committee according to, you know, the Administrative Procedures Act. So they're forced to have these people, they use them as cover, but these people are, are you know, robotic um, in their responses. And they, none, you know, all of them are, seem to believe and some of them are black and some are Asian, you know, seem to believe that these vaccines are all good. And you wonder, how can that be when almost everybody you know knows somebody who got really sick from a vaccine? But these 15 people think they're wonderful. So when when they say no conflict and yes, um, are they under oath? No. All right. So conflict is open to be examined by any journalists or any investigator going forward or any prosecutor, hopefully, if we get any prosecutors <laughs> to take a look at this. Um, how about are, are when, when they're chosen and they get grants or they're promised jobs, uh, you know, that's a quid pro quo type of model. Is does in that milieu, 
Does anybody discuss that? Is that known to people like you who have been examining, you know, the FDA, CDC advisory groups for so many years? There is no um, public quid pro quo, of course. Um, so maybe some people are do are joining these committees because they're careerists. Um, I do can't say. Do they get a fee? Do they get a fee for they the day? They probably get a small per diem, and then they get to collect their normal salaries. Um, but I don't. I think it's not going to be easy to pin down the the financials on all of them. Um, especially when you're an academic, you may get a grant, but it it becomes part of your salary through the university, right? The university collects the money and pays your salary and you're just expected to keep getting grants. And these per diems are probably not going to be big enough to really argue about, at least, you know, from the perspective of a doctor, you know, these people could make, you know, a thousand dollars a day doing something else. So uh, I, I don't know how you're going to identify it, but probably going backwards like Politico did and looking at people who used to serve on the committees and then what kind of money they made in, and a lot, sometimes this money is hidden. For example, speaker's fees. So you can be paid a lot of money as a speaker, but you really don't have to do anything. They'll hand you the, the PowerPoint, just tell you to read it to an audience, and then they'll pay you several thousand dollars for that or more. So, the message that is being sent, I mean, you're a physician. Um, you've challenged the system, which we all appreciate that you have. Um, and if you're a physician and are you going to follow this mandate, this vote? Are you going to use it as an excuse, even though you may have some, are you going to be in fear yes. of disagreeing with it and, and say to yourself as a physician in the U.S., gosh, I really can't go against this. I really have to keep my mouth shut. Yes, I yes absolutely. I mean, the speaking against vaccines is the third rail in medicine. You cannot do it. Um, you know, I spoke out against a lot of different things in my time, but it was speaking out against like flu shots that really got me in trouble. And um the, you know, with my hospital when I was a hospital employee. And of course, speaking out against the COVID vaccines got me in trouble with my medical board. So they immediately suspended my license and now they've dropped all the charges about vaccines and misinformation, et cetera, uh, because I was right. Uh, and they don't wanna discuss that. But no, I think there's two things. The doctors are, are frightened and you know, the nurse practitioners and the PAs have to follow these guidelines. That's what they're trained to do. And then if the school system, the state requires it, even if the doctor doesn't want to vaccinate kids, they have to, because the kid won't be able to go to school without it. And we, so, have, to, we have to clarify that, that not every single state uh, is in agreement with following what comes out on the children's schedule. There are, in fact, some states that disagree, that have the, the leeway, I, I guess I should use the word, leeway to, to go against the grain of whatever they decided today, but not every state. Right. And in my state, we do have a, an abbreviated childhood schedule. Not every vaccine is on it. However, what happened was the legislature thought they would get to add. They claimed it was the legislature that could add vaccines to the schedule and they would do it, you know, thoughtfully. But in fact, the Department of Health and Human Services started just issuing rules and adding vaccines to the schedule. 
And, you know, they're going to go along with whatever party is in power. I mean, it's a political thing when it's the Department of Health. So, um, you know, we got vaccines added in that way that we didn't think could be added without the legislature, but they were. So, David, from, from the international perspective, who's applauding tonight with this decision overseas? Who's applauding? Um, mm-hmm. Who thinks they're going to benefit from this? The, the headquarters of Pfizer and Moderna. Um, WHO? Well, WHO. I mean, WHO is an interesting. It, it's yes, WHO because they they would like more funding uh, for the organisation. WHO is sort of a tool of others. Um, you know, there's a very big movement here. So the World Bank is very involved in this. They have they've have a fund. Uh, financial intermediary fund uh, for pandemic preparedness, et cetera, which is leading on from this whole mass vaccination agenda. Um, so the the global health community who are on board with this, and there are hundreds, there are thousands of jobs coming and huge funding, unprecedented funding for public health in the international sphere around the pandemic preparedness. So anything that pushes that agenda that increases the idea that we need to vaccinate everyone against what are very mild illnesses for them. Yeah, a lot of people will benefit. Um, The vast majority of the world's population will suffer because there's a diversion of resources from actual health concerns, large health concerns. David, go um, into that more because you and I have talked about that. Yeah. With with the money that is is spent on this so-called vaccinations, COVID vaccinations, it, det- it it takes away from that that the positive health advancements, whether it's clean water, you know, trying to get rid oh, of yeah. the Huge, jobs, uh, economic yeah. development. Yeah, there's a there's a bucket of money, and if you put it all or a lot of it into vaccinating against a, what is a very mild respiratory virus for the vast majority of people. Um, and, you know, the, just on, as Stanford put out a paper in the last couple of weeks, um, re-looking at the infection fatality rate globally. And for under 60-year-olds, they estimate 0.035%. So that's about, um, what's that, three people per 10,000 mm-hmm. under 60-year-olds. So this is, you know, it's very rare. And that's not taking into account that, you know, that those people who do die, they will be people who already have comorbidities and are already very sick. So this is a very mild disease um, by most standards. You divert a lot of money into that. You're taking from other diseases. As I said, we only spend about three and a half billion a year on malaria, which kills 600,000 children. Um, tuberculosis has, I think, a lower spend than that. That kills about one and a half billion people every year, year on year. HIV is similar. Um, the, you know, the, another thing that Tedros said coming back from Berlin to Geneva, um, where he, he pointed out that there's an increasing number of outbreaks of cholera. You know, it, it's not surprising. We have, you know, WHO was instigated lockdowns across uh, low-income countries with this disease. They're now diverting huge resources to vaccines. It's diseases like cholera, which are preventable, manageable, but which are diseases of poverty that are going to increase. We have 130 million people on the edge of starvation now in low-income countries, particularly in here in the Horn of Africa. This is due to 
the response to COVID in large part, these are additional people. Um, and it's, you know, the World Bank is admitting this, UNICEF is admitting this, it's not controversial to state this. So the response so far, and mass vaccination is the latest part of that, is massively increasing poverty, massively increasing poverty-related diseases to in proportions that complete, make COVID completely pale in comparison. So do we have dumbbells running the world? I mean, this looks like... Well, it's, 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 you would think so, yeah. You know, yeah. a mismanaged disaster. It is a mismanaged disaster. But then, you know, we, we see the WHO using this disaster. So there's an increase, you know, 13 more countries in the last year have cholera outbreaks than before. Mm -hmm. Well, so let's divert the money back to poverty mitigation and clean water. No, we'll put 2.6 billion into vaccinating people who don't need it. You know, so it can't they'll still be have power. They'll still have, you know, unclean water at the end of the day. But well, they'll, they'll have more because it's less money for clean water. Right. So the, you know, the, these people are not insane. So you can only assume that this is in the end, this is about money. And this is about the people who will gain that you asked about who, you know, vaccine companies, etc., and, and the people who work for them and this industry that's growing around this area, um, they, they're doing very well out of the pandemic and they will continue to do well. So I think we've just seen a, a complete disconnect uh, from the global health community and its institutions from disease burden and what people are actually suffering from in low middle income countries, which is most of the world's population. So. We have this disconnect and rather than working for them, they're now working for large corporations. Um, and that's probably related to the flow of finances, which has changed in the last two decades from country-based to increasingly private-based finance for WHO and the other institutions. So they are following where the funding comes from. It used to be the countries, now it's much more private corporations that benefit from this. So I have to ask the big question, the big elephant in the room. And from both of your perspectives, Merle, I'll start with you. In the arena that you, in your orbit, how well is it known that the decision that was made today is really to create that no product liability at another layer? How many people are talking about that within the within the medical field, the scientific field that you that you are involved with? Because this is not your first rodeo. You came out and connected Gulf One syndrome, you know, to the anthrax vaccinations. You testified before the House and the Senate in the late '90s and the early part of 20 years ago, and, and to discuss, you know, the, the the dangers that were involved with, with the anthrax vaccinations at the time. Is this do people get it around you that this is just another layer of no product liability for pharma? Um, I think very, I mean, I think people who have been involved in vaccine, you know, freedom groups are well aware of this, but I think basically nobody else is because mm -hmm. the media have never reported on it. Um, and all, and the, the minutia of the rules and regulations, you know, is it requires a lot of effort to inform yourself about it. You know, this, this uh, countermeasures injury compensation program, for instance, nobody had ever heard, really heard of it before. 
Um, I would agree with everything David said about the public health disaster we're undergoing and the impoverishment of probably at least a billion people as a result of this uh, so-called pandemic. But I am not thinking that it's only about um, making money for the pharmaceutical industry because um, governments, especially ours, but many governments decided about 20 years ago to focus on uh, global health surveillance, global health um, issues that would involve pandemics or biological warfare. And they decided this was a really great thing to put money in. And in the United States, we put about $150 billion into this. So we, we moved a lot of people into the field. And then with the pandemic, we've paid off a lot, you know, a lot of people in industry, school, you know, other things. So basically we now have, um, you know, a great piece of our population that is dependent on funding for pandemic and bioterrorism preparedness and response. And it was found that by employing this concern um, and creating laws about it, so we have all these new laws that came up after 9-11, um, a system was created which allowed the president, the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, governors and state health officials to gain almost dictatorial powers that could tell us to close our businesses, to stay home, you know, who was good, who was bad, you know, what was an essential industry, what wasn't, et cetera. And um, so this has been a plan. And the other thing that happened was, and the, F and the WHO facilitated this, was that countries were encouraged to sign contracts with manufacturers of vaccines for a future pandemic or bioterrorism. And so countries signed contracts to buy a certain number of vaccines in the future against something we didn't even know what it was. We didn't know what the vaccines would look like. We had no idea how safe or effective they would be. But countries committed themselves with these sleeper contracts that almost nobody knew about. And this happened in the very beginning of the 2000s, almost 20 years ago. And so countries were already obligated to buy these vaccines as soon as WHO declared a certain level of pandemic. And so anyway, we're, the reason this pandemic business is so attractive to governments is because it gives them all this authority, power, and ability to, to increase surveillance and to do other things they never could do before. Yeah, I know I wasn't being simplistic saying pharma. I mean, it's, there's a whole industry here, as you say, which pharma is part of, which is growing and living around this, you know, it's a pandemic industry essentially that's been growing and there's multiple institutions, multiple companies. Um, and I mean, it's not, I think it's not just governments that if you look at the mess in Britain at the moment, um, you know, politicians have some power, but there are other power brokers here. And we, you know, this is part of concentrating wealth in society. We've, and there's a two way street, you know, we have concentrated wealth through software, et cetera, to an unprecedented level that's enabled people to leverage health as well. So the, we're at a point now where there is so much concentration of wealth and this has been accelerated through COVID 
that it is extremely hard, even for a government that wants to do the right thing, to stand up against these sort of resources. So uh, I think, you know, I mean, we have a huge problem in society. This is partly the driver, partly the symptom of it, which is really that we have a very small proportion of the population that has huge wealth and huge power. And the health area is one area they're using it. You know, I, I, I can't help but think <clears throat> 25 years ago, would we have seen this happen? Was there any indication in either one of your professional careers that you would have seen something like this move so fast within a three-year period of time? Merle? Well, um, the, the problem was they didn't have the laws to do it. So what happened after 9-11 was they were able to bring in the you know the uh, what was it called Patriot Act Patriot and then Act. the BioShield Act mm -hmm. and then the Prep Act, which created the emergency use authorization, created this transfer of power to governors, presidents, and health officials, and um, enabled something like this to happen. So I would suggest now, in hindsight. That, that, that people were preparing for this at the time. David, you're originally from uh, Australia. Would you have ever ever thought that in Australia what had happened in the last three years it would have happened? I always thought that the Aussies would stand up and fight before the Canadian you know, trucking convoy and before America. I was surprised. Yeah, I, I was very surprised. I'm not so surprised in a way globally that something like this has happened. Um, I've seen this pandemic industry growing over, you know, a decade or so, really since SARS, when people started to get excited and it was clearly a lucrative career path. But um, I, I thought that governments, that there will be enough governments that had principles and integrity, you know, people in government, that they would stand against it when it came to this. And that's what surprised me. And I think Australia, it's typical of a lot of Western countries in that there's this very strong trust that the government in the end will do the right thing. They're sort of on your side and et cetera. So, you know, people don't want to dig in underneath and see what's going on because they, it's much easier just to trust. And I think Australia has suffered from that. They just, people just trust the government and they, they're unwilling to look any deeper. Uh, how do people find you guys? Because you're out there, you're writing. You know, I always say that the job of journalists is not to be the expert, but unless you really know your field. And many of us who are covering COVID, you know, are not medical science scientists. We're, we're, we're not scientists. We're not, you know, medical officials. You know, we're 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 new to the block, as I say for myself. You know, I'm a corruption investigator. But uh, you guys are out there. You're writing about it, Merle. How do people find you? So merylnass.substack.com and anthraxvaccine.blogspot.com. I do a lot of writing and do some TV shows for Children's Health Defense. David? Yeah, I, I mostly write on for the Brownstone Institute and for Pandata. Um, so you can look them up and find well, I can't thank you guys enough for doing this. Uh, I, I know this was on the fly because we, we were we we're going to tape a show for Sunday. We're, we'll do a different show for Sunday. But I so appreciate you guys are doing this live tonight, dropping in, explaining, putting this into some context so people understand 
how this affects everybody. You know, this is not just a decision made in Atlanta by 15 people that nobody should pay attention to. Everybody should pay attention to it because it affects every family. Globally, there's a larger picture than just yes. what's happening in America. Merle, David, last words. Merle, go first. Anything else you want to say to the audience? You know, I mean, I think you can't, as David said, you can't trust your government. You can't trust your institutions. The, the medical institutions have all been taken over. Um, a lot of money, you know, U.S. government said last month that it spent $4 trillion on the pandemic. So basically everyone's been bought at this point. And you have, you have to, you know, figure out how to take care of your own family. David? Yeah, the same. There's, there's going to be no white knight riding over the horizon to save us. I think this is going to stop if people in general just demand it, stop and stop complying with it. And it, there's, there's not going to be the professional class or anything that does this. It's going to be the just people not complying. And that's, they, people need to educate themselves and start doing that. I cannot thank you enough, guys. Thank you for joining us tonight and God bless you and, you know, Godspeed and all the good work you're doing. Cause I know you're working hard to get out the truth. Come back anytime. Thank you.